Podcasting is an astonishing amount of work, so I rely on some great tools to make it easier. One of my staples is Zencaster. They provide a crystal clear sound and gorgeous HD video. I love that it records separate audio and video tracks for the guests and for me so that everything comes through really clearly, even if there's a lag in the internet. Plus, there's a secured cloud backup so you never lose your interviews. Since I'm often recording from remote places, I love that it's easy to record audio only as well as audio and video. It's super easy to use and there's nothing to download aside from your recordings. My guests just click on the link and we start recording. Go to zen.ai slash canine conservationists to get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Pro. So again, that's zen.ai slash canine conservationists for 30% off. Hello and welcome to the Canine Conservationist podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data for researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I have the joy of talking to Miriam Ritchie from the New Zealand Department of Conservation to talk about leveraging your dog's instincts to conduct a job. Miriam works primarily with terriers to leverage their natural instincts to manage invasive rodents, which is really different from how most of us here in the US and in Europe do it, where we find ball crazy dogs to do this work. I'm super excited to get to this interview, but first we're going to dive into our science highlight. This week, we're looking at a paper from 2021 that was published in the Journal of Tropical Ecology titled Impact of Weather Conditions on Cheetah Monitoring with Scat Detection Dogs that was written by Noreen Maturo and others. What they were doing is that, quote, we examined the impact of temperature, humidity, and wind speed on detection rates of scat from cheetahs during a scat detection dog survey in northern Kenya. And what their results were that, quote, they fa- we found the average wind speed positively influences the scat detection rate of dogs working on leash. Humidity showed no significant influence. Temperature showed a strong co- negative correlation with humidity and thus was excluded from their model analysis. While it is likely that wind speed is especially invalid for dogs working off leash, this study did not demonstrate this. Wind speed could thus influence the success of monitoring cheetahs or other target species. Although most studies could not demonstrate an effect of weather conditions on detection rates, such as Long et al. 2007, Nasser et al. 2008, Lay and Dominic 2015, weather conditions may impact scent detection and influence the time required to search a site, um, which came from Long et al. 2007b. Wind speed and direction, for instance, affect how the target scent is dispersed, but highly variable wind may disperse a scent and make it difficult for the dog to follow to its source. A couple of things that I noticed when I was reading this article, um, and just things to keep in mind as far as their results, was that the dogs were being worked on 15-foot leashes, and there were no off-leash searches. There were two dogs in the study, which is better than some, and that they were using a linear search strategy into the wind rather than across, um, if I'm understanding correctly, uh, which seems like a really odd way to structure a search. Um, The average wind ranged from 0.2 to 3.1 meters per second, so even at their highest end, it was under 7 miles per hour, and the humidity ranged from 47.7% to 66%, which is really interesting because where they found and didn't find results is still within a pretty narrow range. You know, 47 to 66% humidity is not a huge range. It doesn't include the extremes that you may encounter in deserts or here in Colorado in the winter or in a much more tropical environment. Um, And the wind speed, you know, when you're looking at basically still to under seven miles per hour, again, we're not really looking at anything where we can say how dogs are working in 20 mile per hour sustained winds or gusts of 35 miles an hour or anything like that. Um, The temps that they recorded were 21.4 to 29.6 degrees Celsius, so that's 70 to 85 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, So again, they just didn't have huge temperature ranges. Um, And, you know, so they're looking at the impact of weather conditions on cheetah monitoring. And these are the temperature and weather conditions that are valid for cheetah monitoring, but may not be valid um, and therefore may not be all that usable for your project at hand. So without further ado, let's get to the interview with Miriam. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Miriam. Do you want to start out by giving us a little bit of background on your current work, how you got there, um, and then your dogs as well? Yeah, sure. Um, So my current work is local island surveillance for the sort of the summer rodent 
breeding season. So every year um, about this time we do autumn surveillance um, on pest-free islands with rodent dogs and mustelid dogs. Um, and I have a number of islands locally that I work on and then I might get contracted to other places around the country to help with their surveillance. Um, the other thing I'm doing at the moment, I've been doing quite a lot of handler assistance, one-on-one um, -on -one mentoring with new handlers and um, writing training programs and um, that's that's quite cool too. Um, in terms of my dogs, I've got six terriers and another big old hunting dog. Um, and five of them are related. So I've got one old guy, he's nearly 17, and he's, he's, they're all kind of related to him. And then I've got a new little bitch, she's nearly six months, that I'm, she's kind of my next project, and I'm hoping to be able to breed from her in the future too. Um, and yeah, I've got, so I've got four that are sort of useful in working or training, and two retirees. Um, they're all they're all border terrier fox terrier crosses. Um, my little oh, my, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> um, my little bitch is a pure foxy because I quite like to do the first cross or second cross. So yeah, that's gotcha. And are they are they the smooths or the wire coated foxes? Smooth. Yeah, and they're cool. not yeah. they're not really. When I say purebred, they're not pedigrees. They're just sort of farm-bred foxies, but with mm -hmm. only foxy blood sort of thing. Um, I kind of steer away from the, the purebred, definitely the show lines. They're sort of uh, not, so, not so clever <laughs> and a bit, <laughs> yeah. a bit, a bit yeah. neurotic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And especially, yeah, when you're looking for working dogs, you kind of want to go to the people who have the working dogs yeah. and not the... Uh, yeah, not just not the, just the pretty faces. Yeah, for sure. I used to do a lot of breeding, um, bred for the program for about ten years, um, but then um, our bitches died, and um, I didn't. I haven't done any for about seven years. But before that, I was sort of the main um, source of dogs for our um, best detection dogs. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's very cool. And um, yeah, that that opens up a whole other can of worms as far as questions. But we'll I'll save it for a second. Um, so the main reason I wanted to talk to you um, was because, as you know, here as I, I I think you know here in the U.S., when we're looking for detection dog prospects in the conservation dog world. We rely really heavily on looking for dogs that are absolutely ball crazy, and then we just teach them, "Hey, find the thing, and we'll give you the ball." But you. That's not your your method. You're using terriers that are bred to find, um, you know, find vermin in order to find rodents and mustelids as well. So how do you, what does that screening process look like with a young dog or a prospective dog? Um, and does it vary a little bit based on the project's goals? Like do you have different dogs who are better suited to different types of projects? Um. Usually, I do now. I didn't so much in the early days, sort of, you know, we had our proven parents and we breed pups and um, and sort of assumed the pups were all going to be good, but that's not usually the case. And now I really select for what I call a, a soft terrier, a really biddable terrier that's very handler-focused um, because terriers just by nature have um, as much fire as you could want <laughs> um, and I don't really like working with the really super hunt-driven terriers. Um, I haven't yet had a terrier that didn't have some, some hunt drive so you don't, I don't select for it specifically um, um, and yeah, in terms of the projects I guess um, for a for a cat detection dog you might choose a, a slightly a, a bigger um, maybe a, a bigger terrier because um, they sort of 
covering more ground, um, more at more speed sort of thing. Whereas with with the rodent detection, you you do a lot of a lot of miles on on islands, but you're also doing um, a lot of sort of work around buildings and sort of close searching um, by security. Um, and I like a dog that's that wants to that poke into poke into buildings um, that I can chuck up on shelves, um, put on my shoulder to carry down a ladder into a ship hold, that kind of thing. Um, so that's that's another reason why why I use terriers for this work is their portability. They're they're just so handy and hardy. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and they don't tend to. Uh... Yeah, I, you don't meet a lot of terriers that are extremely soft. I mean, I work with border collies, and they're um, they they take offense easily <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So I've I don't really use f full borders anymore because they they can take offense. Uh, border terriers, sorry, because they sort of can take offense. That's that's why I quite like the crosses. A bit of foxy in there makes them a little bit hardier in the personality because they they do get a lot of kind of negative stuff um in terms of training them off the non-target so they've got to be quite hardy and not not sulky and um yeah if that makes sense sort of take take the good with the bad <laughs> whereas the borders can yeah can sort definitely of, yeah the border terriers can sort of shut down a Gotcha. And so what were, you said that, you know, even with proven parents in a litter, you wouldn't necessarily have all of them able to go on to work. What are some of the reasons you said it's probably not the hunt drive? What are some of the reasons that they, they may not be able to succeed in work going forward? Oh, uh, they, not that they couldn't succeed, but I've found there are some that are just super hard and not, um, a kind of hunting for themselves and not so handler focused. Um, we, because they've got so much drive and prey drive, you need to be able to uh, contain that, so to speak. So you need them to be working for you as well as <laughs> themselves. I think terriers are always working for themselves um, to a point, but but they need to have that connection with you. And there's yeah, they've just if. If they're super, super prey driven, um, yeah, I, I, I avoid them <laughs> for for safety, really around uh, around non targets. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I think that brings us to you know the the main thing that I was curious about is so when you're when you're looking for dogs that do have this really high hunt drive and they are, you know, they are hunting dogs in a way, um, you know, we don't think of terriers as hunting dogs quite the same way as you might think of a, a pointer or a hound, but they're, you know, they're hunting. Um, how do we, how do you teach them to ignore these other vulnerable non-targets or even, you know, even if it's not necessarily like the most endangered, vulnerable non-target, but just, you know, whatever it is that you don't want them to be finding, that's not helpful. Yeah, so that's kind of one of the biggest parts and one of the most important parts of, of the trainings. Because we, in New Zealand, we've got a whole heap of um, mammalian pests and we're selecting, you know, a, a small group that that we want the dogs to find and and then we also have these vulnerable um, endemic particularly um, ground dwelling bird species and so forth um, so for me I always train my own dogs from a pup and they right from the start when you're going out with them they have to learn to not that they're not allowed to chase anything and that and and definitely without, they can't just choose their own, choose what they're going to do. Um, so when I'm out where I live, I've got lots of, I've got lots of rabbits. I've got lots of pukeko, which are a sort of a swamp hen. Um, I've got the odd cat. Um, got lots of little passerines, quail. Um, 
right from the start, any kind of chase behaviour is shut down straight away. Um, and what is useful for me is I run my dogs for morning walks and evening walks as a pack, and the older dogs um, don't chase anything and don't show in, any interest in anything. And, and I, the, the young dogs quite quickly sort of realise that no one else is following them. Um, and and when they're getting... Um, so basically, they get they get told off. And I try not to let them ever have a successful chase on anything or a fun chase on anything, but it always happens, of course, because they're a little pup and they're pretty oblivious. But um, the important thing with... So you can imagine there's quite a lot of negative negative stuff going on getting getting told off for pretty much everything that they're investigating or seeing so I'm kind of bringing in the target at the same time or or plenty of other positives so lots of play and fun stuff um, and um, basic obedience that they can achieve lots of recall um, and praise but also if they're a really soft dog and they're getting told off when they're meeting all these critters, they need to be getting some positive on a critter as well. So that's when I'll bring in, um, with rodents, it'll be dead rats and mice, um, wild-caught rats and mice that that I can hide and play with them with so that they... And they get praise on that. They get to find them. They... they um, and we play a little game with them, and so that's their positive. Because I don't want them to shut down completely and you know stop stop searching, stop using their nose. Um, you think that they're not allowed to do anything, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. That's that's the interesting thing to me is, you know, how we're teaching them to channel these instincts very, very specifically because it's not that you're saying, oh, I've got a terrier that I'm never, ever going to allow to hunt. I'm never going to allow these guys to be terriers. They're allowed to be terriers, but they need to do it towards a very, very specific target. So am I understanding you correctly that it's kind of, it's twofold. On one hand, you're not allowed to make these decisions independently and you're getting some sort of correction um, when you do. And then at the same time, you're also building up excitement and value and interest in your actual target um, species odor. Is that is that about right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's completely right. Yeah, um, yeah, and and with with rodents, um, they're they're everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. with the dogs usually encounter them naturally before I um, intend for them to anyway. Um, so they um, they will meet a wild mouse or a wild rat at some point. And, and if they, you know, obviously that first find or that first, you know, sort of, oh, my goodness, there's that thing that we've been playing with for ages, but it's alive, um, that's, that's encouraged and celebrated, um, <laughs> if that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And so then... Uh, that that also that you're you're doing a great job of leading right into my next question, um, like, are you using rewards? Are they just getting rewarded by being able to, you know, chase and dig and do the searching things that terriers like to do? Um, or yeah, are you using kind of praise, food, toys? Is there anything to kind of help drive that message home when they do find what you're looking for? Um. There's lots of praise, yep, and lots of vocal encouragement. Um, I sort of get quite whispery and excited, and and I try and associate um, a a word, sort of rats, rats, <laughs> um, when they're hunting rats, so that I have got that later if we're doing a really boring job um, and likely to find nothing. Just if I need to rev them up at any point, um, I have that that vocal association that I can pull out of my back pocket. But um, generally, they their excitement is, um, yeah, ju I just encourage the excitement and make it as fun as possible, but they're pretty much <laughs> self-rewarding. Um, 
and yeah, the the, the digging. That I mean, they get really frantic. Um, if there's a live animal, they they get really frantic, and I just sort of share share the fun of that and make sure I'm a I'm a part of that for them. If that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then, so when they are, they're getting frantic, they're digging, they're all sorts of excited. And I'm sure, yeah, that's highly rewarding for a terrier. I can see how you wouldn't necessarily need to introduce any other rewards to that. Um, Then what is kind of, what is the next step? Um, Are they allowed to dispatch the rodents? Do you mark the area and come back for trapping? What is the next step when your dogs have found a hotspot? It's different at home and on the job. So at home, just for a start, they very rarely actually catch what they're, what they're hunting. Um, they, they sometimes get to catch a, a little field mouse. They sometimes will find an, a, ne- a, a nest of rats and there's, there's young that can't run away. But generally, they're just hunting and the thrill of it is, is what keeps them going. Um, but in the field, on a job, they are muzzled. They, um, our job is just to find the hotspot, get as much information as we can, and mark it. And then um, whoever's employed me will come back to to trap or poison, but usually trap. So we have the bodies for analysis. Um, yeah. So, but but when at home, uh, I I let them have a good hunt and heaps of fun and then I sort of take them away when they're when they're peaking (laughs) gotcha yeah that makes sense um okay so yeah we're not we're not necessarily letting them yeah they're they're muzzled um which I'm sure is partially also for the safety of you know just in case a mistake happened with something else popping up um, or I don't know if this is a possibility with your target species, but shared shared burrows or something where the dog could be technically correct, but still coming into close contact with something else. Um, okay. yeah. yeah, and that sounds similar to yeah. like when I've done invasive plant work, they don't necessarily, at least to the job that I worked on, they didn't necessarily expect us to also, you know, come back out with the pesticides and the shovels and try to deal with the plant even though you know i've done that work separately in other jobs it's just too much to ask of a handler um to handle all of that at once yeah yeah and and yeah we keep that quite separate so the dog handlers the dog handler uh the trappers the trapper um and and often um often you're really remote and there's there's no one with you anyway um but there are some sort of close quarter islands where, so the Bay of Islands where I do quite a bit of work, there's actually, they have reasonably frequent incursions because the islands are actually swimmable. So it's not, it's, we occasionally do find an animal and the team are there with the wherewithal to come in and put traps out at the time. So that's a really good scenario. I call them up on the radio and, They'll be working somewhere on one of the other islands and they they come in and set up um, a response straight away. Um, And that's really cool. Yeah, that's really cool because we usually get, they they usually, two days later, they've got a big Norway rat in a trap and it's, it's, you know, the confirmation you you like to hear. And, um, but, uh, I was just going to say back to the reward um, that we're talking about before. Mm-hmm. Um, when when the dogs are are on their target and excited, they they're really not interested in any kind of reward anyway. So even um, even if I tried to give them their their favorite favorite food at, at that moment of um, while they're hunting, they they're totally not interested in in food there. <laughs> They're rewarding themselves <laughs> at the time. And yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. I know I back when I was, um, when I made most of my money as a dog trainer, I ran into that all the time where, you know, someone would have a Jack Russell who's chasing squirrels or whatever. And we had to work so hard and get so creative to try to get to the place where we could use food to reward the dog for ignoring um, 
the squirrel because, you know, nine times out of ten, we were too close and the terrier was too excited and they they wanted nothing to do with our hot dogs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. Um, so. Yeah, yeah, you gotta get creative. Um, I, I mean, especially, you know, when you're trying to reward a dog for ignoring something, um, you know, you're trying you're trying to reward them for something that's already so intrinsically rewarding. It doesn't matter. You don't need to try to bring anything else in. Yeah. Um, yep. It's kind of like, I mean, I don't need to teach either of my dogs, um, particularly not Barley. If I tried to give him a piece of food every time he returned the tennis ball or the Frisbee to me, like he wouldn't eat it because the reward that he really wants is that I throw it again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, like yeah. introducing food to the equation just muddies it up. It doesn't help anyone in any way. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And the, um, I should probably add in terms of the, um, the non target stuff, um, what I think is my main weapon there is my rapport with the dog. And that's, that's why I'm going for mm -hmm. the for the softer, more biddable terrier. So, um, so when you've got a, a young dog, obviously you try and avoid situations you can't deal with. So I'm not going to be I'm not going to be going into places with lots of birds where they'll be overwhelmed and uh, you know and and chase those birds until I've got um, a rapport with the dog so that they. If I call them or I reprimand them, that's worse than the reprimand is worse than the chase. So they're attached to me in a way that they don't want to upset me, don't want to make me angry with them. And I think that's my biggest weapon. Um, because what, you know, what you have, you have to make the, the punishment be worse than the, the the result the result be worse than the chase so to speak and right and that makes sense to me too then where you know but the both sides of it where you would like a softer dog who you know that punishment can be less severe while still getting a point home and then also i see what you're saying about not wanting necessarily the terrier with the highest possible prey drive because we want to be able to have a balance there while still falling within um you know some amount of safety and whatever because i'm sure there are hard enough prey driven enough terriers where it wouldn't be safe or feasible or responsible or some combination of those words to really you know, get those dogs to the point where they are able to ignore other items because, you know, either the, the, uh, basically because the reward of the hunt is, is so salient that the, the punishers available are just not enough. Is that, am I, I'm, I'm guessing here, obviously. Yeah, no, no, that's exactly right. Yep. Yeah. And, and I find that, that uh, makes a ton of sense. <laughs> Yeah, and the, the, the softer terriers are, are, are super easy to train too because they, they just want to please you. You're their number one, and they really don't want to be offside with you. I mean, that's like any dog, isn't it? That if, if they're really focused on you, um, that's super handy in, in, in training. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know part of the reason that I like my Border Collies is that they are so in tune with me and I consider myself someone who's pretty far along the positive reinforcement only continuum. And, you know, I, I'll admit like part of the reason I'm able to do that while working with working dogs is because I select dogs that allow me to do that in a way that I feel really good about versus, you know, there are other dogs that I've worked with in the past where it is much, much harder for me to stay within that like force free or positive reinforcement um, contingency, not that it's not possible, but there are dogs that are, they're so high drive and so focused on so many other things that it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it starts getting really, really tricky in a working situation, um, yeah. to figure out how to balance, you know, what the dog's behavior is showing to you and what you may consider your, your personal ethics and morals. And, you know, and I'm not saying that I like, 
I'm not saying that at all as a way to say anything about your training methods, of course, um, but I, I, as a point of commiseration as far as like, I like my softer dogs too, because it makes it easier for me to get across the points that I want um, without feeling the need to, um, like, for example, sorry, I'm rambling. Um, <laughs> my younger dog, Niffler, um, you know, if he's, he, you know, he, he caught, um, he caught, a, or he, he caught glimpse, glimpse of a squirrel on our walk today. And I can just say uh -uh, to him and he immediately is like, oh, crap. Okay. Sorry. You know, I just keeps going. And, <laughs> um, I think for some handlers that would be far too soft. I've had to really moderate myself as far as how I work with him, um, to make sure that I don't scare the bejesus out of him. Um, but, I also like that it makes it very easy to redirect him away from prey animals um, without having to resort to keeping him on a long line or having an e-collar on him or anything like that. It's just, he's very responsive and I like that. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's, that's really similar to one of my current dogs. And when he was a pup, I actually, I thought he wasn't going to work out because he was too soft. Um, and I nearly didn't persist with him. And he's, he's eight now and he is he's turned into such a good dog because he he's just so honest and so safe um he just won't do anything that he thinks would upset me and but he is he's got a he's a wicked little finder he he's constantly constantly looking for rodents and um he just loves it but he's just so safe and I literally, I don't even really need to say anything. Um, well, I don't with him. He's, yeah, he, he's kind of, he's kind of my prototype for, he's, he was the turning point where I went, right, you know what? Soft, soft is good. Um, you know, I mm -hmm. thought he wasn't going to work yeah, out. but he, which I think he, if anyone's coming out of like a military background, at least here in the US, they'd be like, what? You want a soft working dog? And we're like, yeah, our dogs don't have to ride on helicopters and like, you know, deal with like overhead shelling or whatever in order to do their job. Um, so <laughs> we like it. Yeah. I don't well, know. well, I, my dogs do need to. They, they go and choppers reasonably uh -huh. regularly um, on ships oh, cool. around lots of loud noise, especially, especially, um, um, yeah, la especially biosecurity work, you can be working in really noisy yards and lots of vehicles. And, and to be fair, he he was my most he is my most timorous, and he's the only one that's really freaked out the first time he had to get in a chopper. But he, you know, he came he came right. He's he's mm -hmm. yeah, he's definitely yeah, my that most, makes sense. most neur neurotic, but he's. But the the good qualities definitely outweigh um, that, and then those aren't an issue now. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know, and I suppose I like it's a little bit of conflation on my end to say that a soft dog is also environmentally unsound. Um, you know, that's not necessarily true. Um, like, yeah, my my older my older dog Barley is, I would say, training wise, he's relatively soft. Um, but he also, I mean, yeah, he's been on planes, trains, automobiles, <laughs> boats, ferries. Um, he, yeah, he, he doesn't have any environmental issues. It's much more about um, our relationship. And if he feels, gosh, I'm anthropomorphizing, but like if he feels like he's disappointed me or upset me, that is very, very challenging for him. And, you know, I'm able yeah. to use that to, to get training points across in a way that is, is very um, quick and efficient. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's like, well, <laughs> and, yeah. and he's honestly, he's the quickest and easiest dog I've ever trained. He was just, Mm -hmm. he, he just got everything and he didn't want to do anything wrong and it was Ugh. it was a it was a breeze he was cool yeah how old is will now he's eight yeah okay yeah um 
Yeah, yeah, it's it is it's so interesting, and I know um, you know James Davis and I were just talking about this on an episode we recorded not too long ago. Um, you know, everyone's got their their preferences as far as what they're looking for in their dogs as well. You know, he talks a lot about wanting an uber uber independent dog, and you know that's that's not my mo. Um, and I think part of that is handler personality, and part of that is also project. Um, it doesn't sound like for what you're doing that having a dog who ranges really widely and works really independently, James Davis does a lot of, um, he's doing Fox Den stuff in um, in Australia with Springer Spaniels. Um, you know, it's a very, very different search style. And I can't imagine that the search style of his Springers would work very well for your goals. No, there, um, there, there are a few Springers that have been trained on Lord Howe, they're using Springer Spaniels to um, to look for rodent scent, and that they're ball ball driven. Um, mm -hmm. I find I find them frenetic. Um, <laughs> but, but you and me both. Yeah, yeah. That's just not what I'm used to. Um, but I I I find they sort of wear themselves out quite quickly, and and don't have the longevity on a job that I require. Um, <clears throat> and I don't know if that frenetic searching actually produces more results. Um, yeah, it, it was it was really interesting work, working with with them and seeing seeing the difference. And um, I've just been working with a, a new Springer Spaniel in our program that's um, the same, just got this frenetic work pattern that dog's finding um stoke scat and um and in the heat just the need to stop and drink and get the breathing um down and sort of regroup um would drive me nuts i quite i quite like just just the dogs just cruising along and um yeah, my dogs are basically pretty low energy, but because of that, mm -hmm. when <clears throat> when they find their target, they're super easy to read because they completely change, and 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 that's all <laughs> I that's all I use as their indication um, or alert. I don't know what you call it, but we talk about an indication um, as a change of behaviour, and the extent of that change is is what I how I know what they're showing me. So when they get completely frantic um and absolutely top energy energy level and really hunting that's a live animal present and if it's a bit of interest um a bit of tracking but not that real franticness it'll be sort of recent scent and if it's sort of just a bit of scenting around the area that could be older scent and yeah it's sort of a an interpretation game but it's all it's all about the energy level um mm -hmm. whereas you know the springers are so incredibly obvious when they get their target they just stop dead and and but but they yeah they're just totally different really aren't they yeah yeah very very different dogs and i can see like the wind farm work that i've done i could see a springer spaniel doing really really well at because it's a larger area and you know i can totally imagine basically standing at the base of the wind turbine and just letting my dog run um because we were doing like 100 meter by 100 meter plots under each wind turbine yeah. um <laughs> that sounds great um but you know when i've done um plant work or there have been a couple other projects I've worked on where um, I think you would have to work a little bit harder to work with that particular search style in order to make it really effective. So, you know, it's just, gosh, it's just so interesting how many, there's so many different ways that this job can look and based on the target and the environment and the handler, um, you know, there's just so much to think about with finding the right dog. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. 
Hi, Quinn and Luca here. Luca is an Akita mix that I adopted from a shelter almost two years ago. From a very young age, Luca has struggled with some general fear and anxiety, um, especially out in the world. I randomly took a nose work class and noticed a massive difference in her behavior. She was a lot more interested in exploring her environment and loved going on adventures. I love being a patron because selfishly, I get so much great information about nature and conservation that I would not have gotten otherwise, like books to read and articles to look at. I also get access to Kayla's great knowledge. I am new to Patreon, but I'm excited to have a group of people to help Luca and I move forward with combining our love of nature and her natural sensibility. I love that I'm able to support someone exploring two of my favorite things, conservation and dog behavior. And maybe one day, with the support and knowledge from Canine Conservationness, I can get there myself. Yeah. So, let's... Let's go. Um, we've got a couple questions from Patreon um, as we're kind of wrapping up here and we can, you know, we can talk as long as we like, but we've got two more questions that I have written down, I guess. Um, so Taylor from Patreon asks um, if the dogs are actually hunting the rodents and whether or not that affects your selection. And I think we've talked about this. The dogs are finding them, but they're not allowed to actually dispatch. So just to confirm that question from Taylor. Yeah. Um so I definitely let them hunt. They are, they are hunting really, um, but they don't get that end result. And they, there's almost never been a situation where they, they could get that end result anyway. You know, rats are, they're underground or they're behind something you can't shift or they're up a tree. Um, but the dogs definitely do hunt them. That's, that is basically my, <coughs> how, yeah, that's excuse me. Yeah, that's how I know. That's how I know what what they're doing. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and then Taylor also asked if the like what the the relation. She asked what the welcome has been with the project, and then clarified, you know, wondering what the response has been from the public or um, you know people who own the land or who are running the ships that you're searching. What has that been like? Um. Well, the, the, when the program started back in the, um, the late 1990s, um, it did take quite a lot of persuading people in conservation circles to trust that we could safely use terriers to find mammalian predators and that we could work mm -hmm. them around endangered species and in these fragile environments. Um, but now they are standard operating procedure to be used in any kind of, um, um, <clears throat> if there's a boat wreck or a, um, uh, we do, the dogs are the, f are the first tool that comes in when there's been a sighting, a boat wreck, um, a suspected incursion, um, and we, we're used as standard operating procedure for um, spring and autumn surveillance on islands. Um, so that sort of gives you an idea of how how they've been perceived and the usefulness of them. Um, yeah, that's great. Yeah, and, and the general public just loves working dogs in New Zealand. I'm sure it's the same um, where you are. Just when... So our dogs have a uniform. They wear a little fluoro jacket with um, oh. <laughs> with our, our logo in the Department of Conservation, um, and they they wear their muzzle, um, and we we have a high vis vest on. So they they're very obviously a working dog, and and we encourage handlers to to talk to the public and and tell them about what we're doing. Um, as long as it doesn't interfere with the job, you know, and encourage advocacy on the job as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's always interesting to me how sometimes the, the communications side of things varies a little bit, depending on what you're looking for. Um, you know, I know when I'm doing invasive plants or invasive zebra mussels, that's pretty easy to talk about. Most people are pretty receptive to that. People get really excited when the dogs are looking for the scat of, you know, some sort of charismatic megafauna. 
but um, back when I was at Working Dogs for Conservation, they work with some dogs who have done um, bore scat detection. Um, and, you know, they're pretty far removed from the ultimate um, removal of the bores. But they, um, there were some cases where people would get pretty upset about the fact that um, the, these invasive bores were ultimately going to be euthanized and removed. Um, and even though, again, these dogs were, I think they were actually dogs that Working Dogs for Conservation had originally trained and then were with Alberta. And then we're, you know, they're just finding the scat to figure out where the boars are. And then, it, you know, it's a totally different team that comes in. But there still was some, like, issues with public perception. And I suppose at least with rats, you know, most people are pretty happy to have rats removed. Um, I Have you noticed any differences in public perception from the rats to the mustelids? Uh, no, not rats from mustelids, but definitely um, cats. So we, we do have dogs that mm. find, find feral cats. And, and that is... That's fairly controversial, and you you generally don't talk much about what what you're doing if you have a cat dog. Um, yeah. So my first dog was a, a cat dog, but I was on an offshore island, so I didn't have any public to deal with. But you know that when that when it first was being developed to use dogs to find feral cats, there there was um, there were sort of death threats and um, abuse, uh, you know, fairly full-on abuse. Um, yeah. At the at the thought of it, and it and it's really so. We try and always say feral cats now rather than just cats, and um, <laughs> okay, and, yeah, and make it very clear that the dogs are finding are finding where they are, and then they are they are either trapped or they are put up a tree and shot they're not um they're not sort of ripped apart by a rabid dog <laughs> sort of thing you know the dogs are muzzled <laughs> yeah if there's a face to face then they're not they're not even you know they're at a distinct disadvantage straight away um but, yeah well and your yeah. dogs aren't all that much bigger than cats either i would imagine no i don't know how much a fox border terrier cross ends up weighing but i can't imagine that's exponentially larger than a cat the way that like yeah if i had like an 85 pound male malinois german shepherd across yeah 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 exactly it, it wouldn't be a very it would be a fairly even match a terrier on a big tom so yeah you want to avoid that nasty. <laughs> yeah 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 absolutely so yeah i can totally see how that would be um really difficult and controversial and that seems potentially even more challenging than any of the other invasives that I've worked with because yeah, you know, like I grew up with pet cats. I, and I, I have a lot of really complicated and nuanced feelings about uh, feral cat removal and that sort of work. Cause it's, yeah, it's, it's tough. Um, it needs to be done. Um, and it's the right thing for the ecosystem, but oof, man, I don't know if I could work on it. No, no, I, I, I don't think. I could these days either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, okay. Um, and then Megan from Patreon asked, um, she's got kind of two different questions about introducing the rodents to the dogs during training. Um, her first question is a little bit easier, so we'll start with that. Um, do you use wild-caught, captive-bred, or domestic animals for training? Kind of what is the source of these um, these animals that you're using? Um, they're all wild-caught, yeah. So they're... they're rats that I've trapped myself um, and my dog food shed or in my roof or <laughs> wherever. And I freeze, okay, yeah. I, I freeze them um, or, or use them fresh if I, if I can, but, um, and, and mice as well. Yeah. I don't use gotcha. any, any domestic or, yeah. We don't. Yeah. Need, and then so, we don't, God, you don't need to. Yeah. There's so many, there's so many rodents around in anywhere there, and they're very easy to catch too <laughs> yeah i suppose and so basically what you're running into is that the infestations are high enough in some parts of the uh in the country like where you live that you can easily just source them on your own locally versus and then when you go out to your work site that's where there's a lot fewer of them and that's where the dogs are actually useful Yes, yes, exactly. So all our work is in areas um, of very, very 
low numbers and and often it's like the surveillance is sort of presence absence stuff they're, they're pest-free islands that some of them have never had rodents ever some of them were eradicated many years ago um and we're just checking we're just we're just making sure nothing has got there um but that that question about um sourcing animals is it's quite different with mustelids um so again i mm. use i use wild caught stoats and weasels to train with um but mustelids are much harder to find in the wild to for the dogs to hunt for so i've got i've sort of put the word out and i have a whole lot of people that will let me know if they see one or um the the best time the, the only really uh time of year when you get a lot of like you, where your dog can get much exposure to them is um from october through till about now march where when when they're denning and breeding and the young are around you know you'll suddenly get reports of people seeing um a bunch of stoats um playing and and yeah it's really really difficult to keep to train and keep a, a muscular dog um enthused on their target and and add a, and and to keep them target specific because they're exposed every day to all these other things and all these other critters and basically never see their target um so yeah gosh that's super difficult and yeah i in theory if you wanted it wouldn't be that difficult to keep some amount of <laughs> of uh, of captive rodents you know you could have a couple norway rats in some cages in your basement if you really wanted but i've never tried but gosh i've got to imagine that keeping stoats captive would be incredibly difficult i've personally tried to keep them out of chicken coops before um or homing pigeon lofts we had endless problems with them growing up on the farm i grew up on and I, yeah they're they're tough tough animals yeah yeah they they really are and the um i don't uh there's the odd there's the odd stoke kept for research or um they don't survive very well in captivity either and the i i don't know how humane it is either for an animal that that ranges over such a wide area to be kept captive i i i couldn't do it myself um and it would it would make home life really tricky because it, it's hard enough anyway with having different targets and trying to keep so i need to try and keep my place as rat free as possible because i can't have my my rodent dogs hunting rodents around my mustella dogs um because you know that's that, oh yeah uh-huh yeah that that's the biggest issue is um for a mustella dog is that they're going to get keen on rodents because they're just everywhere so i have to ensure there is no there's there's nothing that they can be going with their mates to hunt at home when i'm when i'm so when i'm when i'm home they're they're out of their runs and they're hanging out um when i'm out they're in their runs but uh, you know if i've got a a rat in my under my outdoor bath or something and my rat is a, a sort of hunting around getting keen and 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 the muscular dogs are with them um you know they're very quickly learning to hunt rats and that's not good <laughs> yeah yeah that that makes a ton of sense and yeah so you're you're the dogs are also totally separate you don't have dogs that do both which i guess in some ways makes sense and in other ways i'm kind of so you wouldn't necessarily want a dog who is searching for both because the stoats are so few and far between that you wouldn't want the dog also telling you about the rats is that kind of the thinking there yeah and um we need we need to keep the target separate so we can guarantee what the dogs are telling us so um if i was doing surveillance on a pest-free island and they indicated on something and and their target was rodents and mustelids 
I wouldn't necessarily be able to guarantee what what they were telling me and that and then we need to know so that we can trap appropriately you know um right yeah 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 because yeah, the, uh, the next step is not equivalent from one to the other no and you're not necessarily going to see which it is no i see yeah <laughs> almost definitely not um and yeah, and the, the other people often wonder why we don't let our dogs chase rabbits, for instance, because there's rabbits everywhere and everyone is, hates them because they dig up their garden and blah, blah, blah. Um, but we have we have a few mainland sanctuaries, um, fenced sanctuaries that have rabbits in them. And if you're, if you're asked to go and check for a rat that was sighted by a member of the public and your dog's allowed to chase rabbits or find rabbits and you go to a sanctuary with, with a whole lot of rabbits hopping around, you know. Right. The, the dog. Yeah, your dog is going to be finding the rabbits as well, you know, yeah, 44 yeah. rabbits for every one rat. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's, well, it's so, you know, I'm so used to working with scat or carcasses or plants, like I've got something to find. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, even if sometimes it's, it, it can still be really difficult to confirm whether or not the dog has found anything like when, and actually, this is the one project I've worked on where the dogs are finding live animals when we were doing black footed ferrets. You know, you're just looking at a burrow being like, I guess there's a ferret in there. That's what my dog is saying. Yeah. Um, and, and I can see how if my dogs were trying to find both ferrets and burrowing owls, you wouldn't necessarily have the same response if you wanted to capture each of those to get a sample or, you know, put a tag on them or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting because usually, you know, within reason, I'm pretty comfortable layering multiple different target odors on my dogs, but it's because generally what we're finding are things where, eh, you know, if my dog, like, next year... If we're supposed to be going out and finding, I don't know, uh, Sierra Nevada red fox scat and the dog finds a dead bat, <laughs> I'm going to be able to see that he found a dead bat and say, okay, good job, buddy. We're not going to bother the biologists with that because I can see that he just found something that's relevant to the other project. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's, that's exactly why our dogs have to be so target specific so that because I, yeah, I basically never get to see what they found. So I have to have 100% confidence in their indication and, 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 and in my training so that I know that I haven't cross-pollinated them, that my muscular dog isn't going to show me a rat um, or, a, or a seabird or whatever, you know, that when they show this behaviour, this is what they've found. Um, and, you know, I've got, um, I work closely with the um, a lot of species dog handlers, so they're the ones using um, pointers and setters and and bird dogs to find endangered species. And they they don't have to be nearly as target specific. If their dog does a really nice, safe find on a on a penguin um, when they're looking for a seabird, uh, uh, you know, a, a petrel, that's that's acceptable because they can pull that bird out and go. Oh, that's a penguin. Um, that's thanks. Thanks <laughs> for that. Whereas we can't. We 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 never will find our our. Um, we'll never see our target, and and a lot of the species dogs can actually have multiple targets because they'll be in a different environment. You know, they might be looking for a a rare duck, so they're working up a river, versus um, a, a kiwi where they'll be working in sort of a bush a bush reserve. But if they did find a kiwi roosting on the edge of a river, that's that's not a bad thing. They can pull them out and go, it's a kiwi, thank you. Um, um, yeah, I've sort of gone off track a bit, but yeah, but yeah we have... No, that's okay. <laughs> we, we, I have to be able to say, yes, that is a mouse burrow. The only thing that they behave that like That my dog would tell me about would be a mouse burrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, yeah, you must have to be so careful with that. And then 
you know, so Megan um, also asked how you introduce the rodents to training. And we talked about this a little bit early on um, as far as when they're young, they're being told, no, not this, no, not this, no, not that. You can't do that. But also this. Um, and you yeah. said that you're doing that with a couple different versions of the odor profile that can be available. What is that? Um, let's let's dive into that a little bit more before we go here. Yeah, so, sorry, what's the question? Uh, how do you introduce the rodents to the to the younger dogs in training oh. or the um, or the stoats or whatever it is? Um, so normally for a start with just a, a young pup, I would, I would have probably the 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 stoat say on a string and um, drag it around, get the pup sort of interested and encourage them um, play with it a bit, then maybe throw it, they get to go and find it and bring it back to you and you give them lots of praise, that kind of thing. And, we, and when they're when they're quite into it, I'll do really, really easy little trails and finds so that they follow the trail and find the animal and heaps of praise. And um, I have them on a string so that you can make them sort of move around and and be exciting for them. And yeah, that's that's kind of how I introduce them. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And that's... Um... That sounds a lot like how I grew up with labs and we didn't personally um, bird hunt with our labs, but we had a lot of friends and neighbors who did. And that's, you know, pretty much how you introduce them to ducks. Uh, and, yeah. you know, that's a little different. It's a retrieving dog versus a hunting dog. And, you know, in theory, they're, you know, the duck is getting shot out of the sky. So it should be pretty obvious what they're going for. But you are also really building up their value for that specific odor so that they know what they're looking for when they jump out of the boat and go, barreling through the marsh trying to find the, the bird you just shot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and as it progresses, you'll start, you know, putting them in likely spots where a rat would be found mm -hmm. or, you know, it, it just gets more complicated and more difficult as, as they progress and and just keeping up the the praise and the excitement when they find it. And, um, yeah, it's all it's all fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's great um is there anything that i didn't ask you about that i should have or anything you wanted to circle back to and expand on a little bit more before we wrap up i don't uh, i i maybe should explain the the muzzle wearing um oh yes yeah <laughs> so so it's just a rule and it with any of our uh, conservation dogs species dogs and pest detection dogs that they have to wear a muzzle and that's just like you said it's just to prevent any um if there was you know a dog's still a dog they're still a predator if something flushed really quickly straight across their nose you know their their instant response would just be to grab potentially it's just to guard against anything like that mm -hmm. just just so just to and to take that out of the equation, um, they have so much training to not grab or chase anything um, that that shouldn't be an issue. But it, it's just the rules, and also it also protects them from eating stuff they shouldn't eat, um, toxin or animals that have been poisoned, um, especially working in forests where they've been using um, aerially sown toxin and so forth you might have carcasses that are poisoned you don't want the dog scavenging or grabbing anything so yeah it's sort of it's just part of the uniform um yeah yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah. i know um yeah i've worked with dogs and muzzles in a couple projects and it seems like the sort of thing that you know if they've, if they've got any amount of likelihood of running into really close contact with you know the target species or anything else that's vulnerable and Honestly, in some cases, even things that are, again, like like where I live, Eurasian cottontails are not at risk of <laughs> going extinct in any way. Um, but it's still not a good look for a conservation dog to grab one. Um, yeah. So, you know, a, a muzzle can be part of that toolkit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. Only, the only 
the only thing we struggle with is, you know, there's a lot of islands we work on that um, the public are, are allowed on. Not not a lot, actually, but there's a number of islands that, you <laughs> you know, there'll be a ferry that takes the public over and you're wandering around with the dog with a muzzle and people think they're aggressive or um, or that, yeah, that, that they are a risk to birds. It's like they're not a risk to birds. They have... S- there's so much training they have to be certified they have you know it's just a I like to say it's just part of their uniform so that it doesn't sound like yeah that that they are any threat because yeah yeah exactly it's just part of the uniform it's you know it's like you know just because I'm wearing a hard hat when I'm on the wind farm doesn't mean that I'm planning for people to throw wrenches at my head it just means yeah. I'm a little bit more prepared in case in case something does happen yeah yeah um, yeah and just because your dog is wearing a muzzle doesn't mean that you're expecting them to go grab a kiwi no but it means <laughs> that you know we're 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 just triply protected just in case yeah 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 well thank you so much miriam um do you want to let people know where they can find you online if you have any social media or anything like that and if you don't that's fine too but uh just in case people want to look you up um i'm not a big social media person but i have got an instagram i don't even know what it's called um (laughs) i think it's new zealand conservation dogs uh okay oh yeah, that's that sounds right. <laughs> it's I, I'm like, I, yes, yeah, New Zealand conservation dogs. I follow you. <laughs> ah, cool. um, yeah. So excellent. Well, we'll make sure that um, I'll share that Instagram link in the show notes if anyone wants to find it. Yeah, that'd be cool. Uh, all I put up is photos of the dogs working. And, yeah. I would imagine that's all people want. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Most of our listeners to the podcast, I I think that's what they want out of social media. I could be wrong, but it seems to be like, like the main purpose. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Cause I don't do a lot of it, but um, yeah. What I mean is it's not a personal one. It's just dogs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, that's, that's what I'm on Instagram for. It's the only reason I haven't gotten rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, thank you again, Miriam, for coming on the podcast. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening. Um, I hope you learned a lot and are feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set. You can find show notes where, again, we'll link to Miriam's Instagram. You can donate to canine conservationists. You can join our Patreon learning club and book club, all at canineconservationists.org. Until next time. patreon yet if you love this podcast and want to support it in the long term patreon is the way to go i spend hours per episode researching guests writing out questions recording interviews posting on patreon to engage with our patrons about all of those cleaning up the audio and putting together all of the promotional materials even with the help of volunteers this is an enormous task that takes up a ton of my time and right now i'm not paid for it For just $3 a month, you can support this show while also gaining access to our exclusive detection dog training video help calls, which happen once a month, our learning club calls, which are currently quarterly, but I'm hoping to move to monthly, and a lot more. You can join the fun over at patreon.com slash canineconservationists or using the link in our show notes. You also may want to share this with anyone else you know who is interested in getting involved in the field of conservation detection dogs, because this is hands down the lowest cost way to get as much mentoring and assistance and joining the community of other professional and aspiring conservation detection dog handlers. And um, you're going to really enjoy it. See you there.